Well, hello again, friends. Welcome to the latest episode of In With The Old. We're a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. I'm Dr. Brian, and I want to welcome you back to this episode where we're going to be putting into practice what we talked about last time. We're going to be taking the context and the world of the ancient Near East and seeing how it can help us understand the biblical text. With me, as always, is my illustrious host, Dr. Tim. Tim, what is going on? How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing great, Brian, and uh, I'm excited for this because uh, we get to hit some pay dirt today. We get to show how uh, doing a little bit of homework up front really does make the text come alive. So what could be more fun than that? We get to spend time in the Old Testament. Absolutely. And I want to thank our listeners for maybe going and trudging through the last episode with us. We recognized it was more of a setup episode uh, covering some abstract points. Hopefully you still saw the value, but we thought it was important to have one episode where we talk about just the general idea of how do we understand the Old Testament in context, in the ancient world, and then having this episode where we can then begin putting it into practice. So just to recap from last time, Tim, understanding Mm -hmm. the ancient world requires work. It is more difficult in the Old Testament than the New, right? Mm -hmm. But doing so will clue us in on the significance of the text in some important ways, won't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and really, in in one sense, uh, it's the difference between watching a TV in black and white versus watching it in in color and high definition. It's not necessarily that uh, if if we don't understand everything about the ancient Near East, that it's going to fundamentally distort the Bible. Uh, but it really helps us to understand it so much better. And in other words, it's worth every single effort that we put put forth in order to understand it. Uh, and it helps us in various ways. We can understand how the Old Testament and the biblical writers are agreeing and affirming the cultures in which they live, not necessarily the behaviors, but the concepts and the ideas. Uh, but we can also understand how they critique them and how they take maybe common concepts, but but really redefine them in new ways uh, and, and in Port to them new meanings. So it's a both and, it's a rich enterprise, it takes work, but it's incredibly worth it. Um, so Brian, let's get into, let's get into some details, because this is going to be, you know, kind of spade in hand, uh, doing some dirt work, and we're going to start with a book that I know you're passionate about, and I know you've done a lot of work in. We're going to start in the book of Job. Um, so, uh, and again, Brian, for our listeners, you've got a book coming out, uh, the prophet and the sage, uh, it's going to be coming out. I, I think later this year, correct. Am I correct in that? Yeah. It's going to be coming out this summer, uh, at the time of recording, it's actually content complete. I'm working on finalizing the index. I still haven't seen the cover artwork, which I'm eagerly looking forward to, but <laughs> it should be coming out summer of 2023. Okay, awesome. So truly, uh, we have a resident expert in-house on Job. And uh, when we think about Job... One of the appeals to Job, and, and this, is, this is, again, where the Old Testament gives us uh, something unique and valuable. One of the appeals uh, to many readers of Job is, is just the reality of suffering that we face in this world. You know, the mm-hmm. Bible doesn't ignore it. The Bible hits it head on in all of its mystery and all of its, its un-understandability. Um, so, Brian, Walk us through Job and help us understand how knowledge of the ancient Near East actually helps us to understand Job better and helps us to to ultimately get more out of it. Yeah, Job is one of those stories that kind of has had universal and transcendent appeal. 
you can look throughout time that this book has been brought up in numerous contexts and in numerous cultures going, how do we wrestle with goodness and and God in the presence of suffering and evil? Mm. And it's an amazing story. It's this extended dialogue between Job and his friends, bracketed, as it were, on either side by both a a prologue and then an epilogue where we see some of the the behind-the-scenes work, as it were, from the heavenly standpoint. Mm -hmm. But it's been really relatable to the human condition because that is something we can all relate to, right? We all suffer. As much as I wish that weren't a truism, it is. Life is not perfect. So it's this beautiful story, and let's start by trying to place it in context a little bit, and then we'll see how it critiques that context. But our listeners may be surprised to know that Job is not unique in terms of uh, genre, as it were. The form is somewhat common. We have numerous examples from a variety of cultures around the people of Israel where we see faithful people questioning their gods and going, how am I supposed to live and make sense of this? John Walton uh, has a book called Ancient Near Eastern Thought. It's a very helpful book in this regard. Uh, And he actually has a catalog of these texts. Just to put out a few, we have from the Sumerian culture, uh, Man and His God, which comes from about the 18th century B.C., We have Babylonian theodicies, or the Babylonian Job. We have, I will praise the Lord of Wisdom, also from Babylon. These are from the 7th and 10th century. We have, from Egypt, the Protests of the Eloquent Peasant. That's a good name for a book right there. (laughs) Yeah. The Protests of the Eloquent Peasant, which is somewhere between the 20th and 18th century BC. And then we have the Instruction of Amenemapit also from Egypt in the 10th to 6th century BC. And while the details are unique, these are expressions from each of these cultures, Sumerian, Babylonian, Egyptian. These are expressions of people going to their gods, their arbiters of truth, and going, how am I supposed to live? Because life is not fair. Life is painful. Life has evil. How do I understand that? And so in that vein, when we come to Job, an ancient reader would go, okay, I understand what this is going to be. This is going to be a dialogue with a man and gods, and they're going to basically explain or debate theodicy or justifications of righteousness. They're going to debate philosophy and how we get to answers. And that's where the change starts coming in. Because, Mm -hmm. Tim, you know this as well as I do, right? Job doesn't just fit into those answers. A lot of the answers given are obedience to God. You just need to trust the plans of the gods. And while that's part of the answer of Job, Job also begins critiquing those things, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And and this is, again, why I think so many people find it compelling is, you know, Job's friends, they give the kind of standard answers. You know, Job, yeah. you, must, you must have a hidden sin. Or Job, you know, if we could, uh, you know, paraphrase a little bit or maybe take a liberty. You know, Job, uh, we, we might even say, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Trust him. And, 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 and that's not literally what the friends say, but it's like they're taking the common answers of their time. And, and Job is, in one sense, putting it through the grinder. He's saying, in my experience, these caricatures, these cookie cutter answers, you know, the, the, the state of opinion that you guys are kind of uh, showing to me, he says, it doesn't work for me. And of course, that's how everyone 
experiences suffering, right? The answers don't seem like answers at times. They might even seem like insults that you would try to put words to my suffering in those ways that you would try to explain it away or minimize it. Uh, in one sense, uh, the friends are trying to take out the poison or at least trying to explain the poison. And Job looks at them and he says, no, th- this is not the kind of thing uh, that you understand at all. You know, you have all of the appearance of wisdom, but in fact, every word you're saying is displaying your own foolishness. So the content is absolutely subversive. Uh, I'm, Brian, tell, tell us more. It's also really interesting because Job and his friends can't even agree on basic premises. You mentioned, <laughs> right, that one of the friends comes forward and goes, well, it's you're hurting because you have sin somewhere. And Job goes, no, I don't. And we as the readers, because we were given this kind of prologue, right, we've been shown behind-the-scenes information, we know Job is actually correct. And so part of the beauty of the story, uh, and maybe tragedy, beauty is probably the wrong word, but the tragedy of the story is Job and his friends are talking past one another. And until mm-hmm. they can agree on basic principles, they, they can't really find a forward momentum so Job has his three friends that dialogue with him, and then we are introduced to a fourth friend at the end, Elihu. And just to make people aware, Elihu is a very interesting character. When you get into the scholarship of the Book of Job, there's not really a consensus on what to do with this friend. So I'm going to give you my opinion on him, because I, I think it, he's Brian. the key to the book. But okay. uh, just take that with a grain of salt. People are going to disagree with me on this, and that's fine. Um But Elihu, when he comes in, has this interesting point because he goes after both Job and the friends. He goes, as Tim, as you said, the friends are giving very cookie-cutter answers that are not actually dealing with reality. They are overstating their case and presenting insufficient arguments for why Job might be suffering. So he corrects them. And then he flips around and says, but Job, and, and this is where I think Elihu is the key to the story, He goes, Job, you are not God. In Mm. your disagreement with your friends, you have also now overstated your case. You think you are Mm. righteous, and you are, but you are beginning to make claims that are only true if you yourself are on par or appear with God. Mm. And that is too far. You need to be careful. You need to be mindful that you are here on earth and God is in heaven. And what are we going to see After this happens, God comes, and God Mm -hmm. basically tells Job, right, gird up your loins. Let's see if you can (laughs) actually answer the questions that I answer. Let's see if you can do what I do, and Mm -hmm. um, pushes this to the next level. And this is something that you wouldn't find in most of these other ancient Near Eastern Job-like stories. We also get to see in the story of Job this distinctly Israelite view of the world, because the story opens, right? And we've mentioned this because Satan comes up and and Job won. Yeah. But we open the story. Hasatan. We open the story with this magisterial picture of God in his throne room and the angels, the angelic court, right, is coming together. And that already both agrees with ancient Near Eastern thought. The gods come together. They hold court. But it subverts it because... How many people are speaking in this court? How many people run this heavenly council? Mm. One person. God. Yeah. And no one else is right gainsaying the, the plans or purposes. God is the one ordaining and acting. And there are other voices, specifically Hasatan, but he isn't saying this is the things that must happen. He is presenting his 
voice in the court, but it's God that's going to lead the story through. We also see subverting some other ancient Near Eastern ideas. You have the idea of the behemoth and the leviathan, these kind of creatures of cosmic chaos. And these are Mm. creatures, these are images that show up in a lot of creation stories in the ancient world. Uh, We have, for example, the gods have to go and kill Tiamat, the cosmic dragon, and from her body create the universe. That's one creation story. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because these two creatures, these two beings, however you want to phrase it, the behemoth and the leviathan, they're brought into the story, and Job almost begins talking as if they were God, right? He sees them, he sees their power being put against them, he goes, look, God's against me. But when God shows up at the end of the story, he goes, Job, you have fallen so far short. Mm-hmm. Behemoth, Leviathan, these are my pets. I walk them around on leashes. They are nothing. Mm-hmm. Your view of who I am has to grow so far beyond what your culture basically says, right? What any other of these stories would say is a God. I am something truly beyond I laid the foundations of the world. These creatures of chaos, they're under my control. There is no one else beside me, right? So it's it's taking these forms, but it's pushing us to a truly transcendent and omnipresent, omniscient, powerful view of this creator God. And that's where some of the enduring power of the story comes from, I think. In light of who that God is, can we begin wrestling with I don't have all the answers, but there is a God who would have those answers. And I don't necessarily need to have everything figured out. And I should expect that I won't have everything figured out at times. Yeah. Oh, my. I mean, that's that's beautifully said, Brian. And and it leads to worship, right? It, it leads to the sense of, of you know, uh, utter wonder on the part of Job. You know, I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too yeah. wonderful for me. And the amazing thing is that even in the midst of that suffering, God comes in, in a relational context and, yes, rebukes Job. Uh, but but here's what I love, Brian. Like, when, when I talk to people about Job, and, and just as you said it at the beginning, Job didn't suffer because he was evil. Job was chosen because he was righteous, and and that's such a subversion of of how almost mm-hmm. all of these cultures thought that that God chose him in one sense in order to display his righteousness. And in fact, God is the one who chose Job. Did have you considered my servant Job? And uh, in and I think as we go through suffering, that can help us as well. Not that we're supposed to think when I suffer that must be because you know kind of some strange strange quotes of God you know, gives his hardest tasks to his best servants or other kind of coffee mug stuff. No, I don't think it's that, but I think we have to remember uh, really all of those premises that you mentioned. Job exposes their insufficiency and instead places relationship with God as the only thing that can come close to not answering the questions, but at least helping us endure the questions. So Job is one great way to kind of see how some context can really deepen and put some meat on the bones as it were reading the Old Testament text. Another area, and it's not specifically one text, but it's a it's an idea, it's a place in the mm-hmm. Old Testament that this can also be seen, is in the temple. And understanding the Solomonic temple, the the rules and the statutes that go into that. Uh, Tim, help us understand, how does understanding the ancient world 
help us appreciate how the temple is put together. Yeah, this one's fun. And and the idea of temple uh, is is something that really is a perfect example of the development of the Old Testament over time. Uh, Brian, as you know, some people argue that in Genesis 1, creation itself represents a cosmic temple. Uh, I've got doubts about that, but even so, it's very clear that God fills the cosmos with his presence, and at least in that sense that God's presence is dwelling there, there is this idea that the cosmos itself is a temple. But of course, the problem is, in light of sin, that presence with God, or at least the immediate awareness of God's presence and the enjoyment of God's presence is lost, at which point the rest of the story of Scripture in one way is how God is going to once again dwell with his people. Um, It's not enough that he can come in certain forms to say Abraham for a moment. He wants to dwell with them permanently and intimately. Uh, So God appears at various times, say, in in a burning bush, or or maybe he comes in a figure. But ultimately, we see this development in the form of a tabernacle, where God comes down on Mount Sinai in in kind of a a one-off situation. He reveals himself to the Israelites, but then he says this, I'm not just coming down to visit, I want to come down to dwell. At which point, here's the tabernacle. Here are all the regulations that go with that. You have to maintain your purity. You have to maintain your holiness. But hey, how amazing is it that you get the benefit of having the God of the universe in your presence? Uh, Then eventually, we get to the actual permanent temple. And of course, God predicts this in Deuteronomy many times. Uh, He makes his name to dwell there in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, which is essentially kind of the footstool of his throne, the, the symbol of his presence. They establish a temple. The Ark of the Covenant is there. There's a holy of holies, which means that, of course, the high priest is the only one who can go in one time a year. You have to respect God's presence. But here's the amazing thing. In every single one of those situations, whether it's the tabernacle or the temple, um, there is no indication that there is any kind of image that represents God through all of those. In fact, the only image of God that's mentioned is humans. Humanity is the image of God. But there's no Mm -hmm. picture of God. In fact, God not only says, I don't want one, he says, you are forbidden to make any image of me, which for all of the other cultures, they would have said, well, how can we worship God if there is no image? I mean, even the Israelites fell into this one, right? They tried to make an image of God, and he says, nope, I'm going to grind it up into powder and make you drink it to make sure you get the point. You should never do this again. Make no images of me, he said, which is, again, the, the import of that, the significance of that is best understood when it's cast in relief against all of the other uh, cultures, because they would have said, you need to have an image in a temple so that you can bow down and worship that image. That would have been standard fare. That would have been standard issue for all the other temples. But God says, not so. Yeah, so as you would enter the Holy of Holies in temples, and temples are something you can find in every ancient Near Eastern culture, you would expect to find the god or goddess or gods and goddesses that are being worshipped at that site, right? This is the Holy of Holies. This is where the sacrifices can come. But, Tim, as you said, that's not what's in the Holy of Holies of Solomon's temple or the Temple of Israel. Instead, Mm -hmm. it's the Ark of the Covenant. And you said it was the footstool of God, which I I like that idea because this is a powerful image, right? The idea of a, a god or goddess there, right, that's your mediator. That statue is the thing that mediates your presence here on earth with the gods in the heavens. And so you'd bring your sacrifices to them and try to bribe them. 
right? You're 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 yes. trying to cajole. Yes. You're trying to maybe trick um, these gods into bestowing their favor upon you. If you come to Israel, though, there's no image there. There's no mediator in that sense. Instead, what do you have? Well, you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is the footstool of God, because his throne is in heaven. But this place is a touch point, a connection. His footstool is here, right? This is an Mm -hmm. actual connection, a link between heaven and earth, much like the garden. Tim, we might disagree on uh, the garden being a temple. I kind of like that idea. (laughs) But that's that's another thing for another time. It's all good. It's all good. Yeah. But the other thing about the Ark of the Covenant is what's in the Ark of the Covenant. It's the Ten Commandments. It's Mm -hmm. the commands Mm -hmm. carved by God. There's no cajoling here. God is not a cosmic vending machine that you have to press the right buttons to get what you want. He has laid out his law. He is established. If you want relationship with me, here's what you have to do. There's no bribery here. There's no cajoling. Yes. There's no, maybe in this sense, there's no ambiguity. You mm-hmm. know what has to be done. I mean, even at the end of Deuteronomy, right? Moses says, look, I've set before you life and death. The choices mm-hmm. are clear. Uh, you need to know what you are supposed to do. And um, this is important, right? That there's not supposed to be uh, an image there that we worship him, as you rightly pointed out, because we are the image of God. That's um, such yeah. an important part. Yeah, and Brian, you know, I, I think of two things, at least. One is, we have to remember that God was the initiator of every covenant, of every relationship. God is the one who sought relationship with people who rebelled against him. Uh, for other worshipers in the ancient Near East, as as you just so rightly said, they felt like they had to go and appease, or they had to go and, and mollify, or they had to go and, and sort of, whether it was by sacrifice or whether it was by gifts, they had to earn their God's favor or pleasure, whereas God says, no, 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 I've already redeemed you, I've already promised through my covenant that I want to be with you, here are the requirements so that you can enjoy my presence and not be consumed, but the key is, God had already graciously given them a relationship through faith, and now the choice is theirs. Are you going to live within those parameters? It it, it wasn't earning God's favor. And this is, by the way, Brian, uh, my 30-second version of why I don't like the word temple with uh, Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, mm-hmm. Temple seems to imply just what you said. This idea that that kind of a middle place is necessary. That there is a that there is a separation that's occurred between heaven and earth, and a temple is a place where those two things collide. And so, in when I see Genesis one and two, there's an immediate presence of God. There's an immediate awareness of Him where there needs to be no image other than humans. Why? Because they have direct access. And so, mm-hmm. I look at Genesis one and two, and in one sense any place where the presence of God dwells as a temple. But what I love to think about is actually in the book of Revelation, whenever it says, uh, Revelation 20 through 22, and at the very end it says, okay, there's no need for a temple. There will yeah. be no temple in the New Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lamb and, and God are there, and they are its temple. So I think with the bookends, if the end of Revelation says there's no temple because we're in the immediate presence, I like that same idea 
that in Genesis 1 and 2, it, in one sense, okay, technically we could say it's a temple because God's there. But in another sense, it was a world where no temple would have been necessary to go into the presence of God. And to me, that, that it, something was truly lost there, where now we have to go to a temple. But of course, the amazing thing is Jesus came and he became the actual living, walking, breathing temple that brought God's presence to us. And again, we didn't have to go to God to make him give us favor. He came to us even while we were still sinners. He sent Jesus as his temple to die for us, which of course may have been the reason why he was so adamant. I don't want any false images because one day I'm going to send my true image and he's going to show you the way of salvation. Well, that's certainly what the author of Hebrews picks up on, right? And just to say two things, uh, we can have the further discussion on temple. I agree, Tim, (laughs) with all your all the points you're making, I, I I might add a few things, but that's maybe outside the scope here. But I do want to say, if any of our listeners find the idea of the presence of God interesting and want to read about it more, I need to give a shout out to my Dr. Vodder, that is the, the person who helped me through my dissertation, Dr. Blake Hearson. He actually has a book called Go Now to Shiloh, which is all about what is the presence of God, specifically in the Old Testament, as it pushes through up and into the New Testament with the idea of temple Mm. being a place of mediation. So I just want to give a quick shout out. Sorry, that wasn't planned, but fantastic book. Perfect, perfect. Go out and read it. But Tim, coming back, I just want to close the loop on this idea of temples, the place of mediation. It's an important point that God has already established the rules of that relationship. And for our listeners, this is the context behind Micah 6, 8. Because when you get to the book of Micah, Israel has forgotten this. They have done what we warned about in the last chapter. They've begun to assume the Old Testament is just like everything else and haven't seen the uniqueness of it. And they're asking in Micah 6, how am I supposed to forgive sins? Am I supposed to sacrifice rams? Am I supposed to kill my kids? Because child Mm -hmm. sacrifice is a part of some ancient Near Eastern traditions. Mm-hmm. And to that, Micah 6.8 comes and says, right, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? He's already established things. There's no ambiguity here. There's no cajoling. There's no, right, you're misunderstanding the points of the sacrifices. You're beginning to think just like your culture does. Mm-hmm. But there's something fundamentally different here. And so, yeah, understanding the temple the Holy of Holies, the mediation, what the Ark of the Covenant is, that's really going to deepen, I think, those stories and appreciate the uniqueness of a God who dwells with his people. And, Tim, as you brought up the the tie-in to the end of the book in Revelation, now the dwelling of God is with man. Like, there's a a beautiful anticipation that if we understand it here in the Old Testament, you see the majesty of Revelation and what that final state actually offers— So that's awesome. So we've looked at Job. We've looked at temples. One other place you can, I think, really easily see the value of understanding the Bible in its context is the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy, right, is one of the most cited books in the New Testament, which cracks me up because we've already talked about... (laughs) awesome. Yeah. We already talked about, right, the most cited Old Testament passages in modern theological studies. And Deuteronomy didn't make that list. And I go, well, it's it's where everyone goes. It's where Jesus goes to rebuke Satan. Every one of his quotes is from Deuteronomy. Um, yes. But Deuteronomy as a book, actually, 
has a lot of value when you understand what it is in its context. So Tim, what is Deuteronomy as a book? Great question. And I think the same thing, Brian. You know, uh, if Jesus knew Deuteronomy and used it as a weapon against the enemy, how much more can we? Uh, but Deuteronomy uh, reflects ancient, what's, what's known as ancient suzerain vassal treaties. Um, so suzerain just basically means something like uh, overlord or king or kind of high authority. Um, so there would be suzerains who then would have vassals, and that language is a little bit more familiar, basically uh, people who look to them for provision or protection. Uh, but oftentimes, and, and there are various forms of these treaties that existed in the ancient Near East, it's a specific type of document that was used by the Hittite Empire, likely first around the 17th to the 13th century BC. And they were basically uh, they were basically documents that outlined the responsibility of kings or those in authority uh, to those who they were called to protect, their vassals, right? The the people who look to them as their their overlord. So um, when we look at those ancient Near Eastern treaties, they really follow a very similar form as Deuteronomy. Uh, you have, for instance, a preamble, a historical prologue, where in the ancient Near East, the king would list all of the things that he had done for the vassals in order to protect them, all of the battles that he had won, all that he had done uh, to bring them to the point where they're at. And as you read Deuteronomy, that's what we see. We see basically Moses telling the story of how God provided for the Israelites and protected them all the way uh, from the time they came out of Egypt to the point where they're at the border of the Promised Land. God rehashes those things in order to remind them of his love and of his promises. Because part of what this is trying to do by rehashing the past is to show, look, we have a history together. There has been faithfulness in the past, and that is going to be the basis for understanding or appreciating right, this relationship moving forward. Mm -hmm. As we've acted in the past, so we should act in the future. Or at least that was the, the logic of including this at the beginning. Israel's recitation of history, though, doesn't show exactly that, does it? It doesn't show faithfulness bilaterally, but unilaterally. God has been faithful to them, even as this is now the second generation is having to look back at their, their fathers and their mothers and going, they died in the wilderness because they were not faithful, right? So similar logic, yeah. but even here we see kind of a, that transformation as we move to the Testament text. Yeah, absolutely. And so there there are a number of these similarities between ancient treaties and the book of Deuteronomy, at which point we can look at that and basically say Deuteronomy was composed or written intentionally in that form in order to function as, in one sense, the treaty itself between God and Israel. Um, and, and yet, and here's what's so cool, and this is what, this is what Jesus goes back to, even as he's quoting, uh, as he's quoting Deuteronomy with, uh, the battle with Hasatan or Satan in the New Testament, um, he, he looks back at Deuteronomy, and he looks at the faithfulness of God, and actually all of the, the texts that he quotes are really contained in chapters 6 and 7 of Deuteronomy, where he's looking to the faithfulness of God. He's looking to the provision of God. He's looking at that and saying, listen, I am not going to, in my mode of temptation, 
I'm not going to uh, abandon my faith in God. He is the God who's going to provide for me. Just like he provided bread in the wilderness for the Israelites, he will provide bread for me in his proper time. Or just like he desired exclusive worship from the Israelites, I'm not going to bow down to you. Or even as the Israelites in the wilderness put God to the test, I'm not going to put God to the test. And so he's seeing even his own temptation in the light of the story of Deuteronomy. But of course, even in Deuteronomy 6, we see what? That that command, love the Lord your God with all your heart. In other words, it's not just about a legal document. God is always, from the very beginning, looking for love and fidelity and faith that's brought forth from his actions in the heart of his people. So, Uh, The book of Deuteronomy helps both situate it in terms of understanding uh, that God is the suzerain, God is the king, Israel is the vassal, Israel is on the receiving end, and yet even in the book of Deuteronomy, we see this key idea of God desiring a true relationship with his people. Pass down from generation to generation, teach your children these things. Let them know Mm -hmm. that this covenant is for them as well. And then all the way through the end of the book of Deuteronomy, other things like calling witnesses, you know, the rocks are going to be witnesses, or, or heaven and earth are going to be witnesses. And then uh, the stipulations, the, the rewards and the curses, those things find parallels in other ancient Near Eastern treaties. treaties. But as we think about those, really, in, in every part, the faithfulness of God comes through so strongly. As we think about the De- book of Deuteronomy, both its similarities and its differences with some of these other documents. Yeah, two things that also jump out to me about Deuteronomy is that, as you said, Tim, and I just want to tease out this implication, it is Mm -hmm. a covenant, it is a suzerain-vassal treaty between God and the people of Israel. But right there, that's not what suzerain-vassal treaties were. They were king to king, right? Leader Mm. to leader. Yes. This is a leader to a people. And there's a beauty in that, right? As you said, this is supposed to be generational. This is national. This is not just, I've made this agreement with your leaders and you common person, right, just are, are kind of cut out of the loop, just as in the creation story, uh, this ideas, these ideas that are usually kept only in the kingship of a culture are now mm-hmm. democratized and sent out to the nation. All people are made in the image of God. We see it repeated here. All people are the the people God is trying to be in this relationship with. The treaty is made with them. And so that's mm-hmm. a powerful subversion of kind of ancient Near Eastern expectations. It's not just your kings or leaders that God wants a relationship with. It's you, right yes. where you are, whatever your position in society. As we think about that idea, it goes back to the identity of Israel as a kingdom of priests, right? Yes, that the entire yes. nation is to be a kingdom of priests. And we see that in the New Testament as well. Like when when Jesus is described as the image of God, for instance, Romans 8, that, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, so that, and that verse continues in 29, he says, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Colossians 1, he's the image of the invisible. God, the firstborn ruler over all creation, but then as we participate in his rule, it goes back to this same idea that we find in Deuteronomy, that we are his ambassadors. As sons, we participate in his kingship, in his reign, in his rule, in his kingdom. And so in understanding, and this is where it's so fun, I think, Brian, in understanding the contrast between Deuteronomy and other cultures, we're actually able to understand how we, as Christ's ambassadors and as co-heirs with him, are 
meant to function in our culture, that our covenant is one where we share the rewards of our King Jesus and we participate in his kingdom as his ambassadors to the world. So understanding the context of Deuteronomy actually helps us to walk it out as Christians. Absolutely. That was really, really well put, Tim. I love that idea. So that's one really important way that it's important to understand Deuteronomy in context. And just real quickly, the second thing I was going to say is there are witnesses summoned. So having witnesses for a treaty is common practice, right? You want to have guarantors Mm -hmm. of the treaty. Normally, right, this would be officials, leaders, but it's interesting, or rather even the gods for the Hittites, they would summon their gods to witness these things. But who is supposed to guarantee this treaty? It's interesting, Tim, you you mentioned it briefly, but I wanted to tease it out again. Um, God summons heaven and earth to witness the covenant that is made here in Deuteronomy. And that's fascinating because I bring it up because if you've ever read through the prophets, have you ever noticed that they frequently are going to summon heaven and earth? And yes. if you're ever wondering why, it's because they were the witnesses to the covenant mm-hmm. in context. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, part of the vanity of vanities that he he's wrestling with in that first chapter is that heaven and earth remain, and yet the, the people made in the image of God who are supposed to be right the leaders and rulers of it, they pass away generation to generation. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this this heaven and earth has been summoned, and while they endure, you can say God's covenant is enduring. And of course, ultimately, it's going to be God in himself that is the guarantor of that. But it, by seeing the, that's the witnesses that are summoned, it'll make better sense of the prophets and some of the ways that they're going to talk about Israel and when they fail, why they say the things they do, summoning heaven and earth to testify against them. What a great segue, right, to what we're going to talk about in our next episode, which is how the Scripture interprets Scripture. Um, That as the Old Testament continues, and the New Testament does this as well, that Scripture is actually going to use scriptural language, scriptural terms, scriptural ideals in order to interpret itself. So as we come to understand not just the ideas of the ancient world, but also the language of Scripture itself, we we can... do that spade work again and come to an even better understanding of how, say, like you said, the prophets use Deuteronomy or how the Bible just continues to build on itself. Uh, so that's what we're looking for next time, isn't it, Brian? Yeah. So we're going to be looking at Scripture interpreting Scripture, how the Bible and specifically the, even the Old Testament builds and develops its own ideas. Listeners, if you've been enjoying these episodes and have feedback or have questions that you would like to see Dr. Tim or I answer on a future podcast, please send us an email. Our email is inwiththeoldpodcast at outlook.com. And we would love to hear from you. We're doing this after all for you and hope that this podcast and our discussions have been a benefit to you. Until next time, friends, stay cool and stay old.